0: Welcome to my podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues with an emphasis on reproductive health, answering questions you may have and debunking some of the myths around our health. And today we are talking to my dear friend, Dr. Karen Hammerberg. Karen is a Senior Research Fellow in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine in Monash University in Australia. She is a registered nurse and has worked for over 20 years coordinating IVF programs. Her PhD, which she completed in 2006, examined the experience of birth and mothering after assisted conception. Her main areas of research include fertility and preconception health promotion, psychological aspects of infertility and infertility treatment, health and development of children born as a result of assisted conception, infertility care in resource-constrained settings, and women's health in midlife. What a lot of wonderful topics. So today we are going to talk about many of these topics. Hello, Karen.
1: Hello, how are you, Joyce?
0: I'm, I'm very well. We, we're ha- we might be having some technical hitches with this one. We're hoping everything's going to work out okay. So can we start by t- you telling us about your amazing career? And what led you to become a nurse and a researcher in the field of fertility?
1: Yeah, well, it is a very long career because uh, uh, in the early 80s, I uh, graduated as a midwife in Gothenburg in Sweden. um, And I had previously done uh, a degree in nursing, of course. I worked in delivery suite for some time. And then uh, this was a time when the first IVF baby was born in Scandinavia. So... Uh, I I became kind of very interested in in the whole uh, area of assisted reproductive technology and was lucky enough to be recruited to be the first coordinator of this this program. And this is now 40 years ago. Uh, I worked in Sweden in IVF clinics for um, about a decade and then I moved to Australia and I kept working in IVF clinics for quite some time. Uh, And then there was this opportunity to actually move on from clinical work to research. And I found that really rewarding because um, with all that clinical experience, I had some idea of what the really important questions, research questions were, in terms of the more psychosocial aspects of infertility and infertility care. So that's where I kind of got stuck uh, into and um, have been Working on ever since in in a lot of different projects, but but most of them relating to fertility, infertility, assisted conception, but but much really focusing on the on the psychological and the social aspects of all this.
0: And um, over those years, I, I started working in nineteen eighty seven. So you, you you've been working in the field longer than me, but over these years we've seen so many changes around assisted conception. So what do you feel is the most important advance that we've had in our field? But also, what are, what are some of the biggest problems or the biggest problem that, we, that we've that we encountered?
1: Well, I, I do think that, obviously, results have, have improved over the decades. It was quite random uh, at the beginning and, and pretty much no one really knew what they were doing. Uh, but over time, I think the greatest advances is that, the, the systems of culturing embryos have improved, so there 's many more and more uh, viable embryos being created uh, the The freezing of the embryos was a huge big um, advance because suddenly you know you could you could choose to transfer one or possibly two embryos and freeze the others, which you couldn 't do in the past and also we have finally um, made some headways in reducing the multiple birth rate, which I think is really, really important. Uh, in the '90s, of course, the um, the um, discovery or the, the 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 new technique of of using the uh, ICSI method for and injecting a sperm into an egg that that suddenly opened up opportunities for couples with male in- factor infertility who really previously didn't have m- many options apart from donor sperm. So they're probably the more technological advances, and I do think that. Uh, you know we, we we think it's it's it 's an enormously helpful opportunity, and a lot of people have had created many happy families from all of this. but we also need to remember that probably almost half of the people who try RDF actually don 't end up with a baby and my um concern is that sometimes the care and the follow up care of people who end treatment without the outcome that they'd hoped for uh, is not probably it's not as good as it could be, and I, I do think there's work to be done in terms of the the patient care side of of uh, IVF. And I know that people call it a roller coaster for good reasons. It's a very up and down journey, and it, it comes with a lot of challenges. It costs a lot of money, and people invest time and effort and and uh, and, and really a lot of their emotions. And then when it doesn't work, it is really very devastating. And I, I think we we underestimate the importance of of good patient-centred care. And and that's one of the things I I think uh, clinics could improve on.
0: Yes, I think um, IVF is talked about so much now. It's even taught in schools. And I think my view is that the media leads us to think that going through IVF is easy. It's It's an easy option and it's going to be very successful so um, we'll talk about our work that we've been doing together, but the fertility education poster that we made together. Um, when we, we've just done some focus groups with young people, uh, they were eighteen to twenty-five, and one of the biggest things they didn't realise was that IVF wasn't more successful. So in in the poster we put the success rates of IVF at different ages, and they thought from the media that it was a lot more successful. So that was one of the things. So. How successful really is IVF now in in 2023?
1: Well, I think you can say, say as a general rule, that the um, uh, probably about half of of the people who try IVF uh, will not have a baby. But of course, it's so age dependent. So for younger women, uh, I think you know you could expect if you had up to three cycles, but maybe six, seventy, or percent of of younger women women under 35 will probably have a baby but if you go into the 40s um the chance of a baby even after three full cycles is probably more like 10 percent so it it is so dependent on the woman's age that is probably the most important determinant of, of chance but and then of course at least in australia about a quarter of the women who start IVF treatment are over 40 so we have a huge proportion of women who really go into this with a very very small chance of of coming out with with a baby
0: yeah and, and the other real point that lots of people don't realize is how expensive it is it's it's got really expensive and, and i know that you have some health provision in in australia um so in in the, in the uk i know you're aware we have this Postcode lottery, so there's some people that live in an area where it won't get funded at all. So, how's the situation in Australia with funding?
1: I, I think from that point of view, we, we are more uh, equitable here because um, there is actually no limit on the number of cycles any woman can have um, in terms of um, you know the, the the IVF treatment, but um, it it is subsidised to a point but it but it's not it's not um um completely paid for so about half of the cost is covered by by the government uh, but it still leaves um people with uh, quite a huge um, cost to pay themselves so is that
0: limiting to some couples are there some couples that really can't afford to even have one cycle in australia
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we, we can't convert it to do, two pounds, but, but um, it would cost around about $5,000 and that would be potentially something like at least £2,000 for one cycle. And that's well beyond the means of, of a lot of people. They have just recently in Victoria, where I live, they have opened up a, a pu- public IVF clinic, meaning that there is no cost to the patients. So um, th- th- a few people might benefit from that, but but generally speaking, maybe people can have one cycle, but they may not be able to have the cycle number two or three that that they might need to actually have a reasonable chance.
0: Yeah, um, and then we've got our friends in countries like Belgium where they fund six cycles. You know, we we I think we're doing mm. an injustice to those people who who can't afford it and who can't even have one cycle to try. I, I find that really heartbreaking. Mm. So let's let's talk about um, some of the new technology. You've mentioned some of them, such as ICSI and embryo freezing, and it's been great that the multiple birth rate has, has gone down globally. Um, but we've also um, got these, lots of new technology. Everyone loves to make new technology, and I, I think it's growing exponentially at the moment. I've been going to a lot of health tech events and femtech events, looking at new technology for women's health and for general health. And in IVF, we've had this for a long, long time. We've had a lot of new technology that's come in to the IVF arena. And um, you and I have both been doing some work on this. And obviously, we want new technology that's going to help the patients. But could you tell us a little bit more about these IVF add-ons and what the situation is like in Australia?
1: Well, I think the last two decades, at least, has seen a, a proliferation of of different um, what we call add-ons, which are um, things that are added to to, to an ordinary normal uh, IVF protocol, and they can be medications, they can be um, they can be laboratory procedures, or they can be um, a, a range of different things, and they they are obviously. Uh, it's it's important that that we innovate, but but also very important that we know whether what we offer makes a difference to the chance of having a baby. People come to have a baby, and I, I think whatever we offer should have some evidence to underpin its use, so that especially when people pay for it. And and what's happened, I think, is in this very commercial environment of of um, um, fertility services, uh, there's great competition, and and clinics want to stand out and they want to offer things that perhaps another clinic doesn't offer. And it's often launched as a um, you know a new uh, to, to improve chance uh, but without real evidence to actually uh, underpin the, the claims of, of benefits. So we've done quite a lot of work on looking at how these add-ons are, are uh, portrayed on the f clinic websites and and, and really the, the information is very incomplete. It's not transparent and it doesn't actually help people make good and informed decisions about whether to use add-ons. So uh, we also know that about 80% of, of women in Australia, at least who have IVF, have used one or more add-on and most of them have paid something for it. So the bottom line is that uh, a lot of people use a lot of things that that don't have a good evidence for uh, benefits. And not only that, we actually don't even know if they might be damaging they might be harmful. So uh, we, we are calling for much more, um, you know, what they call randomized controlled trials to actually establish whether something that is offered is beneficial. And uh, clinics find that uh, a bit difficult because it, it costs a lot of money to do these trials. And also they often say that that patients really want something um, new offered and therefore it's it's a justification for at least trying. And, um, yeah, we debate this uh, constantly, and, and you would be part of that debate as well. And I think we need to continue to uh, scrutinize what's offered and, and, and try and help people understand, you know, that they have a choice and that uh, because something is new doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. And, and and to help patients be quite a bit more discerning and ask more questions and, and try to be um, selective about what they pay for.
0: Yes, I, I love that, Karen. You, you've you said exactly what I would say. Um, and, and we've done similar work to you, looking at UK clinic websites and um, the HFEA have looked at the, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority who govern uh, IVF in the UK. The HFEA have looked at the number of patients that use these technologies. And we have a very similar issue in the UK as you do in Australia. And, you know, pe- people, the public... They just clutch at things. They, 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 they do feel that the new technology is the way and they, you know, we are trying to help them understand evidence-based medicine, but it's, it's hard. And then there are many people, as you say, doing these clinical trials are expensive. And there's many people that will argue that, well, it's, you know, too expensive, but then we have procedures which are done now routinely and are costing patients Thousands of pounds, thousands of dollars, and there's there's no evidence that they work at all. Some of them have been around for decades and and i I feel it very heartbreaking. and when I go to these tech events, and these are tech which are not to do with IVF at all, and I see the same stories coming you know new technology sounds great, and I just get fed up with asking the you know the startup uh, people, um, you've made some very bold claims. Have you got any evidence? And you know they always say no. (laughs) Um, So you know I just feel like almost a broken record that twenty years after you know bringing this up in the IVF arena, we're now bringing up in the broader health tech. Um, And I know you've got some views on that. We'll we'll come back to uh, some of those um, you know health tech things in in a moment. But I I just wanted to do a little bit more about the fertility side. Um, So what about egg freezing? So this is a, one of the new technologies that's relatively new in, as far as your, your and I career goes. Um, it's only been about 15 years or so that it's really become a, a viable technique. So we've talked a lot in the past um, and you mentioned about how it's harder for a woman who's older to get pregnant. Uh, we call it female fertility decline. Um, is egg freezing the answer? Can, can women freeze their eggs? And, and what do you think about that?
1: I think it's absolutely technically possible, and and I think it it is as you say it's it's a very, you know it it's gaining momentum and 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 a lot of celebrities promote it and it's uh, it's somehow uh, launched as a solution to all your problems about when to have a baby and I'm sure it has its place, but I do think that again it's it's really how it's um, explained and 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 people understanding what it actually means because if you freeze eggs um, when you're very young, uh, those those eggs are in very good quality and and the chance of them resulting in a baby when you're older is is quite good. But again, if you freeze when you're very young, you're very unlikely to ever use those eggs. So they might be costing you a lot of money in storage for a long period of time and in the end, you're not going to use them. If you freeze eggs when you're older, those eggs are probably not as good a quality and, and the chance of them resulting in a baby is much lower. And, and so, so it's it's a numbers game. If you're younger, you need fewer eggs for, for a reasonable chance. If you're older, you need many, many more eggs, but you're also less likely to get a lot of eggs. So people need to get their heads around the numbers here and 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 primarily realize that whatever you freeze, there's never a guarantee of a baby. So you know, to have it as a plan for your childbearing, if you really want children, is is a bit risky, and I think you're uh, it's a gamble, and and you can you might get lucky, but uh, again, it's it's also possible that you do all this, but at the end there's there's no baby. So if people have all the the facts and the figures, and they 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 understand the numbers, that perhaps you need to do three or four attempts before you get a number of eggs that's going to give you a reasonable chance. And that will cost you three, four times the, num- the the amount that is advertised on websites. Because, again, websites tell you you can freeze your eggs and it costs you this much. But it doesn't tell you that you might have to do that procedure three or four times, which, which means the cost, cost is much, much higher. So it's very costly. Uh, it doesn't come with a guarantee and potentially – you know people might get disappointed in the end, but again there are there are a lot of women who 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 feel that this this gives them an opportunity that it buys them a bit of time uh they they haven't found the right partner they, they're desperate to have children sometime, and they feel that they do something proactively to uh, to to give themselves a, a, a great opportunity to actually have a child in the future so i quite completely understand that. Have you got the same as we have in the UK?
0: We've we've had very few women come back to use these eggs.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you know if you look at people who froze more recently, maybe they haven't had time yet. But even looking at people who froze quite some time ago, it is a very small proportion of people who use their eggs because either they conceive without using them, or they don't find a partner and they don't want to uh, you know have have a child on their own. So there are t- the two main reasons why why. Uh, eggs remain in storage, and and then of course that comes the time when you have to make a decision about what to do with those eggs, and and that can be quite difficult for some people.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, I I I talk about egg, egg freezing. I say exactly what you say, and I I say that um, I feel uncomfortable if it was Plan A that um, a woman felt okay. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to start my career. <laughs> I'm going to freeze my eggs when I'm 25. I'm going to carry on with my career, find a partner, you know, have have my baby at 38. Um, I I think I think that well that makes me feel uncomfortable. I I know some women are going to do that. I talk about egg freezing as a great plan B, an option that you may need to go to. For example, I was single at 32. Uh, my partner wasn't ready. If egg freezing had been around, I definitely would have frozen my eggs. I wouldn't have frozen them at 28, but when I realized that he wasn't ready, I would have frozen them and it would have bought us some more time. Um, so I think mm. the plan B works well. I think the plan A, as you said, for the reasons you said, I, I think that's that's tricky. And you and I are trying to help educate people to keep them out of the IVF unit. And with egg freezing, we're getting uh, younger, fertile people into the IVF unit. So it's sort of, certainly for me, it feels uncomfortable. Mm. And what do you think about the future of fertility treatment? Is there any technique that is bubbling under that you think might come in soon um, that might change the way we look at fertility treatment?
1: You know, I always think that uh, the best fertility treatment um, is the fertility treatment you don't need to have so i think we we're, we're really working hard both you and i on 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 helping people you know avoid infertility treatment but if you do need it it is fantastic that it exists and I don't see any new technology really uh, making a huge difference anyway. I think we've come to the point where success rates are as good as, as they're going to be because it, we're dealing with biology. Biology is never going to be you know, forever getting better and better and better. There is a limit to it, as, as there is with natural conception. But what I can see happening is that more and more uh, people from different walks of life are using this technology, and that includes, of course, same-sex couples, uh, both male and female, women who uh, go it alone and, 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 and become solo mothers. Uh, so the remit of uh, you know, the, 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 the services that are provided is really increasing and, and more and more people are, are, are making use of this technology. In Australia at the moment, about 5% of children who are born uh, are born from one form of um, assisted reproductive technology or another. And I know it's even higher in some other countries, so in Scandinavia, for instance. So it's definitely um, something that's here to stay. And um, I, I actually don't think that the chance of success is going to increase much. But um Again, the the streamlining; it's becoming easier. Uh, a lot of home monitoring is coming in, and and that's making it a bit more um, easier to kind of combine with other things in life, uh, because it's not quite as as uh, labor intensive for the patient. So, so there are probably some of those kind of more um, technological aspects uh, of of the care element that might that might be improving.
0: Yeah, again, I totally agree with you. Um, I see all these new IVF units being made, and they're all shiny and white and silver, and you know they look so high tech. But I'm, I'm really not convinced they're going to give you better success rates than those that you know have been around for decades. Uh, but let, let's move on now. So you had a paper out recently in the conversation about fertility testing, and um, you know we we both know that if if we had a way of testing a man and a woman's fertility, because it's always two people. And I think some of these tests, are, well, they are, they're marketed that it's just, you know, your problem on your fertility, but obviously it's the fertility of your partner that's important. But they, they have these fertility tests, a lot of these um, home tests that you can do. And how do you think they could reliably predict the chances of whether someone's fertile or not? And, and please tell us more about them.
1: The short answer is that they can't, uh, because uh, what, what I think the test you're referring to is this uh, anti-malarian hormone test, uh, and that's become you know used increasingly uh, out of context. Um, the test is useful in the IVF clinic when a doctor wants to know how much um, fertility drugs to give uh, a woman, uh, because it, it tells you something about what you can expect uh, in terms of numbers of eggs but it really doesn't have uh, it, the capacity to tell you about your current fertility or your future fertility. And when people talk, call it an egg timer test and, and, and all sorts of other things, it's really quite a misnomer because there is no way uh, that this test, uh, they can tell you something about what they call the ovarian reserve, how many eggs are in the ovaries, but they can't tell you anything about the quality. And they definitely can't tell you anything about how how long that reserve is going to last? So, uh, we know that a low AMH at a certain age and high AMH at a at the same age really gives that there's no correlation between that and the chance of of a woman having a baby. But but the these tests are now sold direct to consumers. Uh, people can order them online. And again, we looked at websites and what they say about these tests. And 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 it is promoting it as something you can check your fertility tell you if you've got lots of time left or if you need to freeze your eggs now when in fact the test has got can't give you any of that information so i think people are getting sold a, a bit of a, a, a porky <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, they could save their money i think so
0: in the uk as well as um having them at home you the supermarkets uh, sorry they um uh, chemists are selling them I think the supermarkets are selling them as well actually but the 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 chemists are certainly selling them so you can go in and buy a test um but for many years the fertility clinics again have have promoted them and if you go in the UK certainly if you go to the fertility clinic websites you can go and have your fertility test I think most fertility clinics do a bit more they also do a scan and they may may have have a consultation with a doctor and give you a bit more information so would would that give you any more information if you went to a fertility clinic and had in england they like calling them a fertility mot which is uh, mot is what you have for your car to check that it's working well so they're very much marketed that you know they're going to give you a almost fertility health check um would it would it be beneficial to go to a fertility clinic and have scans and blood tests and any other bits and bobs done
1: well i i guess the more kind of pieces of information you have the more uh, reliable perhaps that information is but there's a very simple rule here and 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 the the, the biggest determinant of whether you have uh, will be able to have a, a baby now or in the future it's is, is just your age and um, there is variation of course uh, genetic variations. some women enter menopause earlier than others and uh, fertility usually we estimate is 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 not functioning anymore about ten years before menopause. so it's not like you have you know opportunities un- until you stop menstruating because fertility in in most cases at least probably f- five to ten years before menopause. Uh, the chance of conception is um, non-existent. So you can have all the testing you like. But uh, I, I think a rule of thumb is that before 35, everything is pretty, you know, intact. After 35, between 35 and 40, there is a slight decline in fertility. And after 40, it gets really hard. And I don't think you need a lot of testing to, to. Um, this is just a biological fact.
0: Karen, Karen can I bring up, um, you mentioned the 10 years before menopause. And that was a, a figure that I've, I've written in my book, and what I had always read. Um, I think I think we need to go back and have another look. I've interviewed so many women recently, um, postmenopausal women, and they've told me about uh, their pregnancies, and quite a few of them have had a baby, and then literally one or two or three years later, they've. Um, entered the perimenopause and some of them quite quickly have stopped their periods. So I'm, I'm really starting to question this 10 years because so many women have told me they, they they totally stopped their periods within a few years after having children. Um, What do you think about that? Do you think we need to go back and have a look at that data?
1: No, I don't because this is population data and it's been collected in, in lots of different populations. Uh, Pregnancies do happen. But uh, it it is just like the uh, probability of it is is just. Uh, I think all the data that I've seen, at least, uh, they say between five and ten years. So the, it 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 varies between women, I'm sure. But at a population level, if you look at every woman and 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 everyone has tried a pregnancy uh, in those years, I, I think the data is pretty pretty solid. Um, and and of course, there are exceptions. So um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't kind of give people that the, the impression that somehow evolutionary we have changed because if you look look at data from populations where there is no contraception it's very clear uh, you know the, the, the time between the last pregnancy uh, and these are obviously historical populations but that's the only way you can look at it because once we introduce contraception it's very difficult to estimate these things and. Yeah, I, th- I still think it stands, and and whether it's six or eight or four years, it doesn't really matter because the the, the main point is that uh, you're not fertile until you stop menstruating, and and pregnancies in the forties is is um, are difficult to achieve. Yeah, that, that's very that's very important
0: advice, and I I haven't changed my advice. I obviously still have let everyone know that. So um, let's talk about reproductive health education. So. Um, I think it was about four years ago, you and I were at a conference, a wonderful conference in Copenhagen, and um, I'd been writing my book um, on reproductive health education, and we'd set up a UK education group back in 2015, and I was really aware of the amazing work that was happening globally. I think in the UK, we we were quite far behind, there was a few people like Jackie Boven, um, who who had been doing research on education, but there were amazing studies that had been going on for many years, such as in Portugal and Denmark, and your amazing work in australia so we, you and I sat in a bar, and I love getting people together who are much more expert than me <laughs> and hope their knowledge rubs off of me so we we uh we that was the first um start of setting up an international group which we originally called the fertility education initiative but we wanted to be not just talk about having babies that's really not our message our message is really the whole of reproductive health so we've changed our name now to the long title but it it does what it says on the tin the international reproductive health education collaboration which we call IREC for short but you you in Australia really have led the way in this, you have been doing fabulous work for many, many years. Please tell us about how this started and the work you've been doing in Australia.
1: Well, we were lucky enough, uh, probably twelve years ago now, to 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 we applied for and got a got a government grant to just to introduce um, a fertility health education program, and this was in response to. Um, one of the obligations of an organization I work for, uh, which is a statutory authority in Victoria, which is called the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority, one of our obligations under the law is to actually, uh, you know, help people understand how they can prevent infertility. So on that basis, we we thought if the more knowledge and, and understanding people have, potentially can help them make um, good decisions about uh, the timing of, of pregnancy and also prepare well for pregnancy because the more we know about the importance of preconception health and how uh, you know optimizing health and taking folate and all of those things really makes a big difference to the the the, the future health the, the health of the future child if if people had those kind of concepts clearer in their mind that, that it might help um, you know optimize uh, the reproductive aspirations that people have that they might have a better chance of having the number of children they want to have and 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 to having he- healthy children so it is a fertility health promotion program so we, we we try and share information about what you can do to to give yourself the best chance of, of having a baby and uniquely I think we have made it a very conscious decision to target men as much as women uh, because traditionally everything fertility is pinned on women they need to do this and that and the other and they, they, they're they scrutinized in, in lots of ways and we really wanted to drag the men into the conversation and make them equally responsible for the reproductive outcomes because research shows that men want to have children just as much as women do so they need to be Stepping up, and they need to to you know take that responsibility seriously. And 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 you can't say, you know, forever that you're not ready and you want to wait and you want to have a baby later because that that's how people miss out because age is still the most important determinant of whether you will have the number of children you you plan to have or wanted to have. It's
0: great that men are coming into the conversation. We've got a new program uh, in the UK a documentary. Uh, following three celebrities that have their sperm count done, and then they talk about the lifestyle changes they can make to try and improve it. Um, and I think when I think when you and I started, we really had forgotten about the men. We we were sort of blaming everything on the women mm-hmm. and weren't really engaging the men. And I think that's a great change. And we've now got research about men's fertility declining as well and that there are other specific issues about men's fertility and we've we've included that on the poster. So if there were just a couple of key points you think men and women should know, uh, what would you say to them?
1: I think, you know, we can't escape the biological fact that the woman's age is is still going to be the biggest determinant of uh, whether a uh, pregnancy will happen but we should also acknowledge that um the the health of both partners at the time and before conception really has huge and and, and impactful uh implications for for the health of the baby so i i think empowering people uh with with knowledge uh and uh, explaining these things in a way that's easy to understand but also that's not punitive and that that you know people you don't want, to make people feel bad and we have written about this you and I that language is so important in health promotion because you can actually put people off and they can start to feel like you know you're just dictating and and um, um, finger pointing and and so forth so I think it's very delicate kind of balance to um, to walk uh, where facts are facts and, and and but you need to actually contextualize them and and make sure that people understand that it's not you know, they haven't done anything wrong uh, and, and and you don't want to make people feel guilty or shame, ashamed or any of those things. So really trying to be very uh, positive and um, instead of saying, you know, smoking, you know, is bad for you, you can say, if you stop smoking, these are all the benefits you can expect. So you, you need to turn the messages around so that they're more palatable and and, and that people can think about. Yeah, these things might actually be helpful, and, and, um, but you also need to have strategies for how you can achieve those things. I, I, I think the, the problem with weight is, is, is one of those examples, because to just say that you, know, you need to be in the normal weight range is actually not very helpful. And the more we read, uh, the more we understand that weight loss doesn't actually help very much. So we, we need to focus much more on a healthy diet than, than on weight loss. Uh, and I think the conversations around weight are, are starting to shift and, and, and we're thinking more about it as a, um, not an individual's problem but, but something that's influenced by so many environmental factors and that we, we should not focus on the individual uh, in terms of the, the, the obesity rate. So it's a very fine um, line conversations to have and I think the way you, you frame your messages really has a big impact on whether your message is going to be heard and people will take action in response to that knowledge.
0: So, um, with regards to female fertility, I keep seeing adverts and posters again for um, supplements and, you know, potions and lotions and all sorts of things that will rejuvenate women's eggs. Um, so, we we healthy diets obviously important, but is there anything a woman could do to turn back? Her fertility clock and make her her egg more youthful and um, fertilizable.
1: Not, not in, not to my knowledge. But I, but I, I hear the spin, and I, I've heard it uh, coming. And the the most recent kind of add-on uh, is this ovarian rejuvenation. I mean, I, I just want to cry when I even heard the name because I think it's delusional. Uh, obviously, I think women who want a pregnancy, however they want it, they should be on folate because folate and iodine are absolutely essential and they make a big difference to the, the, the risk of a birth defect. So for all intents and purposes, any, any woman in reproductive age who is not taking, taking um, using contraception is, is wise to be on folate because that, that will avoid most of the spina bifida that otherwise would occur. But apart from that, a healthy diet... And uh, you know, regular exercise, uh, and 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 trying to be moderate in terms of alcohol, and absolutely not smoking. They're they're probably the most important things you can do.
0: Excellent advice. Now, Karen, we've never talked about the menopause, but I'd really love to hear your view about the perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. In in the UK, we um, have uh, quite a negative narrative that this is all doom and gloom and a terrible time and something that women have to go through and they're going to be like this forever and you know there's only one answer and that's to take HRT um I just wondered what you thought about all of this
1: well having gone through the whole uh, phase uh, of perimenopause and postmenopause and 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 the whole rest of it I have to think that I have to say that I think that that all those uh, doom and gloom messages are, are, are a bit overstated. Uh, there's a period of time when when the body feels a little bit different because it's adjusting to to, to all those new hormone levels, and and um, you know hot flushes are, are unpleasant. Uh, but generally speaking, I think the whole thing is quite manageable, and I I would much rather focus on the on the positive. That there's a lot of good things that come out of post um, postmenopausal life and I I really think that, that the narrative around that the women they get that you know fuzzy thinking and it, it Sometimes it sounds like you know, would you ever hire a woman who's postmenopausal? When and if they have got all those problems, when in fact I think women can be super productive, and there's a lot of things we don't have to worry about postmenopause. So I think professionally we can often you know do more and 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 engage more because some of the other responsibilities we we have have ease off. So I I would I would much rather see, and I'm trying hard myself to <coughs> to emphasize the. All the good things that that happen uh, after menopause. Uh, so um, uh, I also think, of course, that uh, for those who do suffer really severe symptoms, and and some women do, it's very important that that they feel that there is some help, and and uh, they should try the different um, combinations of hormonal therapy to try and reduce those symptoms. But for most women, I think it is a it's a phase when when we you know a phase of change, and, and, and some of it is is a bit unpleasant. But generally speaking, I, I think life is looking up post-menopause.
0: Again, I always agree with you, Karen. I, t- I totally agree. I, I call it the time of liberation and freedom. It's just, um, for, for me personally, it's been a wonderful time being post-menopause. And I, I think I'm doing my best research work. I'm doing my best social life. Um, so, yeah, I think we've got to um think of the positives and and I agree if we create this terrible image of uh all the symptoms and problems a woman will have while she's going through the perimenopause who's going to employ such a woman you know is are they going to start asking are you still having periods before they employ you which which they couldn't do but um yeah I think we've got to be careful and in the UK we we um we sort of gone overboard now. We we weren't talking about menopause at all five years ago. We're talking about it all the time now, but we've uh, we've got to come down a little bit and and put it in perspective. We've, we've I think we've overshot uh, the the discussions. So um, I've called my podcast. Why didn't anyone tell me this? Because so many times in in my career I've heard people say that, and certainly I work on. Health education reproductive health education um has has stemmed from this. Is there anything that you haven't mentioned already that you've heard people say? Why didn't anyone tell me this?
1: Well, the the, the biggest one, unfortunately, is uh, this. Um, you know, a, a woman thirty eight wants IVF. Uh, it doesn't work, and 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 you then start to explain the the, the biology of of, of, of um, aging in in women and and that's when you often hear i wish i'd known that Uh, and i i I feel that uh even though it's it's not a very kind of sexy message to have to try and sell that you know your fertility is declining and and certainly uh into your 40s it does get difficult people don't actually want to hear that but but i also think if you don't engage with the biological reality it is it is a it is an uphill battle, and people get disappointed. And and again, I think the other thing is that, as we talked about before, considering IVF uh, a backup plan, um, you know, if you if you wait um, and 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 you, you plan to have children later in life, and you think if it doesn't work, I'll have IVF. Well, unfortunately, IVF is not very helpful, uh, so it's it's not a good plan B. And 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 I think that's something that people wish had been told as well. <laughs> So yeah and they're probably the main
0: things. The the research we've been doing with the poster with the young people um, they really appreciated having the information because they felt it was really important but we did discuss with them could you imagine if you were older and they said yeah that that would that would definitely be difficult to take um because you'd want to have known that. So yeah the 38-year-old woman who's only just really Getting to grips with her fertility decline—it's a hard message to take. So, so important to get this message with young people, so and it's so it's really ingrained in them, and then they can make their own decision about how they want to live their life. But they've got the information. Um. So, what motivates you, Karen? You've you've had such an amazing career. You've done so much brilliant work. What motivates you to do this?
1: Uh, the more the more i have got into this idea of of uh, health promotion and 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 associated with um, you know linking that to people's reproductive um, goals and aspirations i, I find that uh, quite rewarding and and people are generally uh, grateful to to receive information and i think if you can make it um you know really user friendly and, and, and be a bit imaginative about how you present uh, information, because I think we, we have so much technology now. So there's there's many more fun ways of actually conveying information and there's interactive tools. There's all sorts of things you can do. So th- being kind of creative about how you engage with the public uh, in terms of these kind of messages that sometimes aren't really what people want to hear, but trying to to penetrate all that and and, and to still you know enlighten people about the reality of, of fertility, uh, I, I find that really rewarding, and I I enjoy um, this this idea that you you communicate complex uh, concepts um, in in a way that that people can understand. That that's um, I I really enjoy that. Fabulous. So that leads nicely on to my.
0: Last few questions, which I'm asking all my guests. What makes you happy and where is your happy place?
1: My happy place, um, I've got lots of happy places. <laughs> happy professionally, I think, is, is when, when you feel that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really you come up with something um, useful and, and people respond well to it. We did a series of um, short, very short, like one-minute videos with a comedian a little while ago, a guy. And he, uh, he was funny, of course, but he was also uh, up for the challenge of trying to convey messages about sperm health to men and 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 we had a campaign that really was directed to men, and he was super funny and and there were just five very short videos, but they they were hugely successful, and somehow we managed to kind of hit that sweet spot between you know humor and and be, without exaggerating but but actually conveying very serious messages in a humorous way. And I feel for, for men, often that is a, a quite a helpful way of, of communicating information. So, you know, if, if, you, if you hit some kind of uh, little gold nugget in, in, in communication, I, I find that very rewarding. So that's, that's a happy place for me.
0: And what, is there any, anything else that makes you happy? So some people have said, you know, sitting on this sofa, for, for me, it's being on a beach. Anything <laughs> away from your work life that makes you happy?
1: Oh, lots of things! I, I I really enjoy all the interaction with. Um, We've got grandchildren, which, which is lovely. But even you know, I'm sitting in wintry Australia. Imagining a beach would be absolutely wonderful. I love to sit on a beach and uh, enjoying the sunshine and uh, holidaying in exotic places. You know, there's so much I enjoy.
0: <laughs> yeah, you do a lot of traveling, which um, I'm envious of. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and the very last question: What advice would you give your younger self? Could be, could be anything. Could be about work. Could be about your private life. Anything.
1: Well, I, I think, generally speaking, is if if there is an opportunity to try something, um, jump in. Uh, I, I think um, I never want to, you know, think back and think that I, why didn't I tried that job or why didn't i you know take that opportunity you 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 might jump in and and find that it's not the right thing but at least you'd know and i, I really want to um yeah if, if if there is opportunities of challenges presenting I, i'd like to jump on them and i think uh, i would advise my younger self to do it mostly i have occasionally i've kind of decided not to and i i think a, a, any young person who has opportunities should just Go for it, and and if it fails, it's it's a learning, and and if it's successful, it's it's wonderful.
0: I love that. I love that. You have got nothing to lose. <laughs> so no. thank you, Karen. No. Thank you, Karen, so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you as always. A shame we're opposite ends of the world, but we're going to be together soon in Lyon, and I'm looking forward to having another. Glass of wine with you and seeing what other wonderful things we can come up with. Thank you very much, Karen.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Right, I've pressed.